I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 64 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. After years of semi-secrecy, Jesus is finally prepared to be recognized publicly as the long-awaited anointed king of Israel. Then he starts picking fights. Let me ask you something. And I want you to actually consider internally anyway. Don't yell things at me. Consider internally for a moment what comes to mind when I ask this question. What was Jesus like? What was uh, his personality? What, what was the demeanor of Jesus? Or if you were to ask a close friend of Jesus at the time, what's Jesus like? How would they describe his personality? Everyone in this room, I think, has some idea of Jesus, but many of you have more than just a vague impression of him. You've read stories of his life, or you've heard his teachings in detail, or you've seen countless artistic depictions of Jesus. So what, was, what was he like? Ordinarily, uh, Jesus is strangely depicted as being mostly one thing. So he's very stoic and very serious. He's kind of like a quiet mystic. Or he's wise and kind of stern. He means business. He's an intense teacher. Or Jesus is sometimes depicted as constantly pained. He's lost in silent torment all the time, aware of his encroaching death and at odds with the world around him. Or here's another popular one. Jesus is very flowery and gentle all the time. His words are always overtly kind. He never says anything that isn't peaceful. But the weird thing about uh, Jesus so often depicted as mostly one way is that his biographers don't do that at all. Jesus is very stoic sometimes. He prioritizes silence and solitude, for example. He really likes the quiet. He goes away often to pray by himself, sometimes for entire nights at a time. But Jesus is also depicted as making jokes and even being sarcastic. Uh, he celebrates constantly. He has long dinners. He goes to weddings. He goes to parties. He goes to big get-togethers, so much so that people accused him of being a drunk and a glutton because he loved to hang out and celebrate into the night with people, no good kind of personalities. All kinds of people were drawn to Jesus and his vibrant personality. I doubt because he was miserable and stoic all the time. He's depicted as joyful and funny. Um, and sometimes he's very intense. He talks about judgment. He talks about concepts like hell with fiery, even violent metaphors and word pictures. He calls people snakes. <laughs> he tells some people that they would be better off dead. He calls his best friend Satan. <laughs> so what, what was Jesus like? Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. That's right. We are back at it, people. It's been three years, but we're near. That's not an exaggeration. I looked it up. It's been three years. We're nearing the finish line, sort of. Chapter 20 out of 28. Woo! Yeah, that's right. And there's lots of ground to cover tonight, so let's get to work. Now, if you've been tracking with us at all these last uh, few years <laughs> as we've made our way through Matthew's biography of Jesus one line at a time, one question raised by 
both the author and the characters in the story over and over and over and over again is, who is Jesus really? And this is a question worth asking. In his commentary on Matthew, scholar Dale Bruner writes this, the first main issue for the church, then and now, is the messianic issue of Jesus himself. Who is he? What does he mean? There is no more serious question than the simple, who is Jesus? Now, at this point in the story, what we're about to read this evening, Matthew, the author of this biography, arranges three specific encounters to offer summary question or summary answers to the question of Jesus' identity, which is why Bruner, again, notes of this passage, here, all that Jesus is and has shown himself to be so far in this gospel is summarized in a comprehensive way for the church which is really nice for you and I. Now, each of the three encounters we're about to read reveal one dimension of Jesus' identity. First, he is the gentle and merciful Lord. Second, he is the humble king. And third, he is the mighty prophet. So let's unpack each of those by working through the text one line at a time. You guys ready? Yeah. You all right? Great, thank you. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. The story goes... As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. So pause for a moment. That's why this takes so long, by the way. <laughs> Remember, uh, we think that Matthew's gospel was written with a Jewish audience in mind in particular. So here, Matthew has Jesus returning to, Jeru to Jerusalem via Jericho, which is significant for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we know from the story before this that Jesus intends to suffer and die when he returns to Jerusalem. He told his disciples this. They didn't really get it. And why would they, really? They think at this point that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He is the long-promised, anointed king who would overthrow Rome and end Israel's oppression and inaugurate a kingdom that would never end. So the Messiah can't die. That doesn't make any kind of a sense. Since it's probably just one of those weird things that Jesus says. That's absurd. So the return to Jerusalem sits real heavy in the text for the reader and for his disciples, but it also mirrors Israel's journey into their promised land. We read that a large crowd follows Jesus. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem with a new people and a new way of life. He is, in a sense, retelling Israel's story. And the text goes on, verse 30. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. Now, interesting subtlety here. In the past, Jesus' own disciples have been guilty of trying to silence someone who calls out to their rabbi for help. They did it earlier in a story with a Canaanite woman who called to help, and they were like, just tell her to be quiet, send her away. But here, it's the crowds that do the silencing, which is Matthew's way of saying non-disciples. People on the outside are trying to shut these guys up. And the verse goes on, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Verse 32, Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do for you? He asked, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Now, notice a few things about the story. These blind men call out to Jesus and they call him Lord. In Matthew's gospel, only those who believe in Jesus address him as Lord. The author uses this subtlety to give us, the reader, an indication of who's who. 
as far as Jesus' audience goes. They call him son of David as well, which is a Jewish recognition of his identity as the Messiah, as the anointed king. They recognize Jesus coming in authority, and they respond by acknowledging who he is. The crowds want them to stop making a scene because it's indecent, it's annoying. We actually know from other stories that it wasn't uncommon for people to assume that one's blindness was a result of either their sin or their parents' sin, so they weren't exactly welcome company in context. But their faith is too great to be concerned with indecency or what people think or what people say. They know it's Jesus, they've heard the story, so they just yell even louder, have mercy on us, which beautifully has become a liturgical prayer for the church enduring for centuries now. Matthew depicts blind people as the ones who actually see Jesus, highlighting again and again the upside-down, counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God. And faith, we know from this, at this point in the story, we know full well that faith gets Jesus' attention. So let's see how he responds. Verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Whenever the affliction is particularly loathsome in Jesus' culture, skin disease, running sores, lesions, blindness, Jesus touches it. Jesus makes this grand show of moving in close when the entire world keeps a distance from our wretchedness. And of course, the blind men get up and they follow Jesus. They become disciples because Jesus is the gentle, merciful Lord. It's a beautiful story, really, and Jesus is as good as we have come to expect he will be at this point in the story, but get this, there is one haunting detail that makes this healing story different from every other healing incident recorded before it. In Matthew's gospel, every single time Jesus is recognized as the Messiah, Jesus commands that the information be kept quiet. Remember, Messiah is a dangerous title in this context. Everyone believed that the Messiah would be a conquering military leader who would lead a revolution against the oppressors and install himself as the new king. That is volatile information in a world kept under you know, the tyranny of the enormous, mighty Roman Empire. So when people recognize Jesus for who he is, even though they don't understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus will turn out to be, Jesus commands them to keep quiet. He's not trying to get in trouble at this point. But then, as Jesus returns to Jerusalem, the city where he believes he will die, he is, again, publicly recognized as the Messiah, and he doesn't say anything. So imagine how chilling that would be for his disciples that have been following him this entire time. Jesus is no longer the secret Messiah. He is prepared to be inaugurated as king. So I imagine his disciples standing by, witnessing this, just waiting for him to say what he's been saying over and over again. Don't tell anybody, and he doesn't say a thing, and their hearts speed up in their chests. What does this mean? What's about to happen? But that's only the beginning. Keep reading. Chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Interestingly, Jesus' particular use of Lord when he says the Lord needs them here refers to Yahweh, to God. So literally, he's saying, if anyone asks, say, God needs them. Verse 4, 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So Jesus sends for a donkey. It could be that he got some kind of insight from God's spirit that that would happen that way. It's probably something that he arranged off screen, so to speak. We don't really know because the story doesn't say. But I love that line, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. Lord emphasizes Jesus' authority, his kingship. Some scholars argue that it emphasizes his deity. But the Lord also in this story needs something, which emphasizes Jesus' humanity. And the thing that he needs is a donkey, which emphasizes his gentleness. It is a masterstroke of literary sophistication on Matthew's part. But uh, why the whole thing with the donkey at all? You see, the Jewish imagination was informed by the Hebrew scriptures and the promises of the prophets. They believed that one day the Messiah, God's chosen king, would come down the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem to rescue his people. I found this quote on this text in particular from Martin Luther this week, and I quite liked it. He said, Jesus is presented here as sheer grace, humility, and goodness, and whoever believes that of him is blessed. Look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. He does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens, and to take them on himself. Jesus, of course, was intimately aware of this prophecy from Zechariah 9, quoted here by Matthew, and he decides to fulfill it, deliberately activating the hope of Israel in grand spectacle. Jesus is Lord and King, but he is gentle, humble, and good. In fact, scholars note that Jesus' decision to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey is also a deliberate gesture of nonviolence. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great entered Jerusalem on a magnificent war horse to conquer it, but Jesus, the Messiah, whom everyone believed would take up a sword against Rome, enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says of this passage, victors in battle do not ride into their capital cities riding on donkeys, but rather they ride on fearsome horses. But this king does not and will not triumph through force of arms. And what's more, there's no trumpets or heralds or chariots, nothing to separate Jesus from his people, which is why one scholar I read noted that he comes on a quiet donkey that the poorest of his subjects may not be discouraged in their access to him. So if not silencing the blind, man, the blind men who recognized Jesus as Messiah wasn't enough, this ought to do it. And again, Harawas writes this, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem is an unmistakable political act. He has come to be acknowledged as king. He is the son of David, the one long expected to free Jerusalem from foreign domination. Yet, this king triumphs not through violent revolt, but by being for Israel the one able to show it that its worship of God is its freedom. So it is a bold gesture. And the people respond. Look at verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
So it's beautiful, the scene, the, the people traveling with Jesus, they dignify this humble king on a donkey. Jesus has yet to meet with the people within the city walls in full force. This is the entourage that came with him. But these people, the entourage, they shout, Hosanna, which means literally, save, please. They shout, praise the king, save, please. They lay down their cloaks so that this donkey can walk over them. And then look at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? <laughs> and that can be translated, uh, Jerusalem quaked. In fact, it's the same uh, Greek word that gives us our English word seismic. Jesus' entry into the city is huge. It makes a, a huge quake in the city. And I love the answer to that question, who is this? In verse 11, the crowds answered, oh, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus is so obscure that he has to be identified with such specificity. One, because uh, Yeshua, Jesus' Hebrew name, was a common Jewish name. Um, it still is a common name. In Greek, it's Joshua. Um, but also, because... <laughs> no, no, I wasn't inferring anything. But also because Nazareth was so obscure that it had to be geographically linked to a place that people actually recognized. Nazareth in Galilee. It's a place near there. It's a whole thing. It's not just the merciful Lord, it's the king, but the humble king. And then the story shifts dramatically. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts. So remember, this entire scene unfolds during the time that Passover is being observed in Jerusalem. All Jewish men were expected to visit the temple during this time. So the city would have been insane with crowds and activity, hustle and bustle. And the area of the temple that Jesus has entered is called the courtyard, which was made up of an extensive open area surrounding the building. Most people were allowed to go in there, so it became a kind of neutral meeting place for visitors and locals and pilgrims in need of an animal to sacrifice, and they could trade currency and buy doves. So in steps Jesus into this crowded craziness with all these visitors and all this hubbub, and read the rest of verse 12. And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. And the language here is really strong with drove out being the exact same word used elsewhere to describe exercising a demon. Jesus is appalled, apparently furious even, with the temple establishment being run with the lifeless efficiency of a supermarket. And notice that Jesus doesn't just drive out the cashiers, he drives out the people buying from them, implicating them as guilty as well. But he isn't done, keep reading. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So it was customary in the temple to offer resources for exchanging pagan currency for temple coins so that you could use them inside the temple to conveniently buy doves that you would use for sacrifices, especially if you were a pilgrim and it was unrealistic to travel all that way with animals. But it seems as if Jesus believes both practices are corrupt contrivances that misuse the temple. Some scholars doubt that Jesus would have taken such a strong issue with the currency exchange specifically. Uh, N.T. Wright notes this, the temple itself, instead of being regarded as the place where Israel could come to God in prayer, had come to stand for the violent longings of the brigands for a great revolution in which the kingdom of God would come by force. It was everything Jesus had opposed throughout his lifetime. So the point is, either way, that the temple establishment is in some sense corrupt and that this money exchange and the selling of doves represents that in some way. Now, bear with me for just a minute or two while I address a bit of a caveat here. There's a point to it. 
The story of Jesus getting rough with the money people is a favorite amongst uh, those who don't like Jesus' teachings on nonviolence. And the text has been used to defend everything from violent self-defense to gun advocacy to military violence, whatever it might be. Honestly, I just recently saw a man use this text, this story, to argue that what Jesus does here is comparable to owning and using an automatic assault rifle somehow. But scholars note that these arguments read so much into a text that has consistently depicted Jesus as deliberately teaching and practicing nonviolence. Bruner notes, he touches no one's person, he hits no enemy, he does not go inside the temple's innermost precinct where sacrifices were offered. All this takes place in the court of the Gentiles where worship ought to go on, but where there is apparently too much business for worship to be focused or undisturbed. But Jesus does touch property. Property is put below personal values in the ethical calculus of Jesus. Though it is not correct to say that Jesus destroys property here, he does thoroughly rearrange the furniture. (laughs) I thought that was hilarious in an academic volume. Now, so no, Jesus does not contradict his own teaching, but he he does get very angry and he makes an intense display of his frustration. And there are two reasons that I mention all that. The first is, like I said, this text has been used to paint Jesus violently, and I would argue that that's incorrect. But the other, much bigger reason, is that in my studying this week, every single scholar that I studied saw a very specific thematic motif of nonviolence in this story. So don't miss that this is the same modest king who just moments prior rode in gently on a meager donkey as a deliberate gesture of his unique kind of peaceful kingship. But Jesus is not some soft, passive, enabling figure who has nothing to say about what he perceives to be evil and injustice and corruption. You do you. Who am I to speak out on that? The ever popular modern distortion of Jesus is completely deflated with this one story. You know the the modern interpretation. I just don't think Jesus would ever be harsh with anyone. He would just love them. Yes, he would love them. Sometimes love is very gentle, and sometimes, apparently, it flips over tables. Jesus is not the gentle, merciful Lord and the humble king only. He is also the the mighty prophet. In the modern vernacular, the word prophet or prophecy has become almost entirely synonymous with uh, predicting the future. And even when we know that that's not what the Bible means by prophecy, it can be tricky to keep that word in its ancient context. One of the primary functions of the prophetic tradition of Israel was to confront evil and injustice, to call it out for what it was. Israel's prophets call out sin. They spoke for God by reminding his people of the truth, which included the promise of coming hope in the future, and it included the condemnation of sin and injustice in the present. And Jesus stands in that tradition as a mighty prophet. And look, he's going to have words with them too. Look at verse 13. It is written, he says to them, and he quotes the scriptures, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So, predictably, Jesus stands up against corruption and injustice with, what else? The Bible. Good grief. I love how he does that all the time. To the ever-popular complaint of, we like Jesus, but not the Bible, one can only reply, how? 
The two are inseparable. In the mind of Jesus, one confronts evil and injustice. One confronts the devil himself with the scriptures, the authority of the Bible. And most of you who grew up in church are likely familiar with the metaphorical armor of God listed in Ephesians 6. Among the items listed, the only offensive one is the scriptures. And if Jesus doesn't seem antiquated enough, notice the high value that he sets on the temple, a place of worship, a a building, and he calls it God's house. He calls it a place of prayer. My generation has responded to the overemphasizing of buildings by, you know, sanctimonious religious leaders, and what we've done is de-emphasized buildings. Think about our church. Uh, We emphasize church around a dinner table during the week and what we call Van City Communities. We emphasize it as something of equal importance to the Sunday gathering, which oddly has backfired as we have a couple dozen people who show up to communities with regularity, but who show up to Sunday gathering about once a month or less, which is not belonging to a church community, to be clear. But we emphasize communities, homes, the dinner table, all of that on purpose. But in Jesus' mind, places, and by places I mean even buildings and rooms and structures intended for worship are imbued with a kind of spiritual significance because of what is meant to happen there. I was in uh, Israel a few years ago and visiting this archaeological site of the synagogue in Capernaum which was in great shape for being so old. The stone benches were there, the mosaic on the floor was still all there, and uh, the floor come to think of it, was uh, mentioned by the tour guide uh, specifically and said that this floor, we are almost entirely certain Jesus himself walked on on more than one occasion. So a few people in the group, you know, kind of timidly shuffled close and are leaning over self-conscious to touch that floor, man. And uh, (laughs) another young pastor near me, as I'm watching this happen, he stood by and he judged them. He said, it's not that floor that's special. He started doing a little sermon. It's not that floor. It's not this building. Jesus is everywhere, man. You know, that whole thing. And I thought, you're not technically wrong, but excuse me, I'm about to go touch all this floor. (laughs) Did you not hear him say that Jesus stood on this floor? Shoot, are you nuts? I'm going to touch the floor. (laughs) Take a picture of me touching the floor. (laughs) Think about this building. Uh, I hope we're a church for many years. I don't know how long we will be or how much of it will be in this building. But already in almost four you know, short years, this place is infused with something significant to me, our story so far. I'm here all week, and I often sit in the empty sanctuary throughout the week and to pray, and, and I think about that, the significance that our story has infused in this building, that Compass Church has infused in this building, whatever the heck was going on before that. <laughs> Um, Jesus isn't upset by the injustice only. He's upset by where it's taking place because the temple is to be a place of prayer. And the Greek word here indicates not just kind of silently talking to God, but all forms of worship or what we would think of as church. There is a place, a building intended for that purpose, a building, a structure. It's not the only place where it can happen, of course, but it is a special place. And Jesus doesn't just scold and flip tables. He gets to work rectifying the situation in an incredible way. Look at verse 14. Then right after all that, he flips the tables, he yells at the people. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So it's hilarious. Jesus actually drives the people with the money and the status out of the temple, and then he ushers in the poor and the diseased in their place. 
He's tapping into a multitude of texts like this one from Isaiah. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Or this one, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness like streams in the desert. The day has come, Jesus is saying, not just in the secret corners of the empire, no more discretion whatsoever at this point. It's time for everyone to know that the Messiah is here. God's presence has returned to the temple in Jerusalem at last. So what will people say? Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So don't miss uh, what's inferred here. Jesus has driven out the cashiers. He's brought in the very kinds of people not typically welcomed into the temple with celebration. Sick people, blind people, and little kids, apparently. And it's very clear that this has erupted into some kind of party. There are people shouting and singing that Jesus is healing. Hosanna, it's a whole thing. And the religious leaders get ticked. Look at verse 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. <laughs> Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Now, get this. This is hilarious to me. Jesus answers, uh, which seems pretty Jesus. You know, he, once again, he responds with the Bible. That's to be expected. But it's incredible. This man is just trying to get in trouble at this point. These guys come complaining about Jesus being praised. And Jesus counters by saying, well, yeah, but hey, remember Psalm 8? Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. Now, in this text, who is the subject of praise? God. Yeah, Yahweh is the subject of praise. And these religious leaders are ticked because they think that the people praising Jesus is blasphemous. So Jesus responds by telling them that they should expect it to happen. After, after all, Psalm 8 says so. This man is trying to get in trouble with these people. And then he just leaves. Look at this, verse 17. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And that's the story. Weird, wild stuff. Now, prior to this story... Jesus has kept the true scope of his identity very quiet. Jesus told his disciples prior to this story that when he did return to Jerusalem, he would die there. And when Jesus finally arrives, he does so in such extravagant pageantry that his identity as Messiah and King is not just a quiet conversation with someone newly healed in the outskirts of the empire. It's being shouted and sang by crowds and kids in the city streets and in the temple and if that wasn't enough, he picked a fight with the temple establishment right there in their house. Jesus is enacting his revolution, but it is, like all things Jesus, not what anyone expected. And the whole story only darkens from there, at least for a little while. Now the question, I think, for you and me is how to read something so vividly and specifically historical and make sense of what it means for us tonight. This is, after all, a scene set within a much larger story, and that story wasn't written to us, but it is, in a certain sense, for us. And the question I've been wrestling with this week is the one I posted straight away. What was Jesus like? Yesterday, our family had our you know, weekly Sabbath time. We relaxed, saw a movie with the kids, played games. It was mostly very nice. 
But it was also a particularly honorary day for both of our small children. We found ourselves correcting and disciplining them quite a bit throughout an otherwise nice day. And uh, I don't feel conflicted about correction or discipline. I believe in them. But sometimes I, I hear my own stern voice come out of my mouth. <laughs> and I make a note to myself that it will need balancing with gentleness and fun later after the correction and the discipline. You know, I, I heard a theologian once say that affirming a child is like putting a quarter into a jar. And speaking sternly to them is like taking three quarters out. Both must be done but a parent can never run a deficit in the jar. So I want my kids to say, if ever asked, was your dad ever angry or stern or disciplinary? And they would answer, yeah, of course he was, for sure. But in their minds, when they think of me, I want them to see someone who was kind and gentle and merciful and caring by disposition. And that made me think of the way that Jesus is not one thing only. All of us have been shaped by the people in our lives, in particular our parents, um, also our friends, uh, also pastors and authority figures. Um, we've been shaped by experiences in our lives, things that we've done, things done to us. And those things inevitably leak into our perception of God. That's true for all of you, whether you realize it or not. But God is not like us. Jesus was what spiritual form, formation writers call a fully integrated human. This means that Jesus, unlike us, was able to experience sadness, full measure of sadness, without despairing in his sadness. Jesus was able to experience anger, authentic anger, without sinning in his anger. Jesus is a mighty prophet in the story. He repudiates sin. He's much less concerned with offending people than we are. He's more controversial than we are, but Jesus is not rude or belligerent or condescending. He's certainly never passive-aggressive. He was able to rail against injustice without confusing his disdain for the injustice with disdain for the people practicing injustice, which is something most of us can't do very well. Jesus is not one way only. To follow Jesus is to recognize Jesus as master of your life, yes, and accepting him as gentle, merciful Lord, as humble king in the place of authority, and as the mighty prophet who repudiates sin. All of these things, and sometimes concurrently. And some of you will allow a mental image of Jesus as merciful Lord, but you're less interested in his kingship and his authority or less interested in Jesus as a mighty prophet who would rail against sin or flip a table over. You want nice Jesus, but you don't want him to have very serious things to say about your life or the decisions that you're making. You don't want his correction. You don't want his disapproval of sin. But Jesus will correct you. Believe me. He will disapprove of sin in your life. Again, believe me because he is good enough to do that and because he loves you enough to do that. Some of you will allow a mental image of Jesus as king and prophet because you like the idea of Jesus who's very serious about sin and he's tough and he's aggressive, he's very authoritative in his kingship and that's all true too. But Jesus is also the merciful Lord and he's gentle and he's kind and he's patient and he's gracious and he wants to speak softly to you, and he wants to forgive you, and he wants to pick you up when you fall, even when the falling is your fault. 
So let him do that. To end, I want to ask you guys a question I've been asking myself all week, which is, are we allowing Jesus to operate in the full scope of his identity and personhood in our lives? Is there a part of Jesus from which you do not want to hear? A part of Jesus that you've been avoiding or resisting, which could be the correction, it could be submission to his authority as king, it could be to letting Jesus into every aspect of your life. You want what Jesus has to say about worship, but you might not want what Jesus has to say about the, your words or your money or your future or your sexuality or your habits or your vices, whatever it might be. Or is it that you're afraid to let him speak gently to you, afraid that his great overwhelming love for you might be too good to be true? So tonight I think the invitation for us recognizing each dimension of Jesus' personality and who he is, is to let Jesus speak. Let him be who he is, whatever that needs to be for you on this particular evening. So come, Spirit of Jesus, we are listening. Come speak as we pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.